Hey everyone, Mike Kaprowski here, director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Uh, I am really excited uh, because we have a very special conversation for you today. Uh, this year marks the 30th anniversary of Out of Reach, which is a report put out every year by the National Low Income Housing Coalition, or NLIHC for short. And NLIHC, of course, chairs and leads the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The Out of Reach report, which was released this year on June 18th, really shows the pervasiveness of the housing crisis in such a powerful way. And many of the statistics that you frequently see in reference to the affordable housing crisis come directly from this report. So who better to set the stage for this conversation than the person sitting next to me, Diane Yantel, president and CEO of NLIHC. So Diane, uh, talk to us about the significance of Out of Reach. Out of Reach, as you know, it has been around now for 30 years, and it's really become a landmark resource to help people understand the affordable housing crisis and its solutions. So year in and year out, its findings are cited by the press, by policymakers at all levels of government, by academics, and by advocates. And the report contains really simple, relatable, easy to communicate stats, like in 99% of counties in the US, a full-time minimum wage worker can't afford a one-bedroom rental home at fair market rent, or that a worker earning the federal minimum wage has to work 127 hours a week to afford a two-bedroom rental home at national average fair market rent. That's more than three full-time jobs. So these statistics penetrate and they help local policymakers, media, and advocates tell the story of how the housing crisis plays out locally. And in the report, the numbers are broken down for all 50 states, the counties within each state, and by zip code. So the first edition of Out of Reach 30 years ago was subtitled, Why Everyday People Can't Find Affordable Housing. The report, which was then just a paper booklet, helped establish a precedent for data-driven advocacy by putting simple, timely, locally relevant information into the hands of advocates and decision makers around the country. And a lot has changed, obviously, in the past 30 years. New data sources and the internet have really fundamentally changed how people access and disseminate housing data. But what hasn't changed, unfortunately, is that the U.S. has a deep and pervasive housing crisis that affects millions of renters and a pressing need to educate and mobilize people to end it. So tools like Out of Reach are critical for getting this message across. And so to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the report and to capture the history around it, we invited New York Times reporter Emily Badger to interview an esteemed panel. The amount of knowledge and experience here is truly impressive. I mean, it's a fascinating conversation. They sat down with Emily and they shared their thoughts on Out of Reach. How did we get to this point? How have policy changes impacted access to affordable housing? What are the solutions and the resources that we already have in place, but that are woefully underfunded compared to the need? And what should the next president do in their first 100 days in office to significantly increase affordable housing for the lowest income people? So here it is. Enjoy the conversation. My name is Emily Badger. I'm a reporter with The New York Times, and I write about cities and urban policy across the country. That is a very broad umbrella that covers a lot of different topics, but housing always sits at the center of everything that I am thinking about. 
I'm constantly coming back to it because housing is connected to health. Housing determines where you go to school. It determines what kinds of jobs you have access to. It determines the levels of pollution and violence and social capital and good things and bad things that you're exposed to, that children are exposed to. The inequalities that are built into the housing market have these ripple effects through inequality elsewhere in the economy. You know, it impacts differentials in wealth between different communities across the country. It's intimately tied. I've been thinking about this a lot lately with the conversation we're having around busing and school segregation is intimately tied to what happens in the education system. We can't talk about wealth and income inequality without thinking about housing. So housing is this essential thing that a lot of people take for granted, but really, really is the piece of the puzzle that if it is not working for people, everything else doesn't fit. I have come across what feels to me like the single most powerful fact describing the crisis in housing in America in the Out of Reach report. This is the central fact that much of the report is built around, but it's this. There is no state, no metropolitan area, no county in America where someone working a full-time job at the local minimum wage will earn enough to be able to reasonably afford a decent two-bedroom apartment at what the Department of Housing and Urban Development calculates as the fair market rent. So we're not talking about luxury apartments. We're not even talking about the apartment that would cost what the median rent in a given community is. We're just talking about what it costs to afford effectively a modest apartment for a working-class family. Typically, economists and policymakers say if a family is spending more than 30% of its income on housing, it is spending too much. That family is not going to have enough left over for their health care costs, for food, for school, for all of the other things they need to afford. So what we're talking about is a situation where an individual worker working a full-time job at a minimum wage job will not earn enough to be able to spend less than 30% of their income on what this fair market rent is. The fact that we see that everywhere in the country really points to the pervasiveness of this housing crisis that a lot of times we talk about is this is just something that's playing out in coastal communities, in big cities. There isn't really a housing problem in smaller mid-sized cities or in interior parts of the country. And this is absolutely not true. And this data makes that very, very clear. This one single fact is so compelling. And I think that that's why I bounce into it everywhere I look. You hear it coming from candidates on the campaign trail running for president in 2020. You hear it in congressional testimony about issues happening on Capitol Hill. Every time I open up a window on my computer to read a story by another reporter about housing or even something just tangential to housing, this notion that housing is unaffordable to people earning what we consider to be supposedly a basic livable wage, that is, in fact, is not true. This central fact contained in the Out of Reach report is the premise for half of what's written about housing in America right now. Part of the reason why I think that one statistic is so powerful is that it takes a lot of the criticism of the poor and the ways that we often talk about poverty in America and turns it on its head. There is this strong narrative that has been with us for a very long time in America that people who are poor, who can't afford housing, who you know may even be homeless, are in that situation through their own lack of effort. They are to blame for being in that situation. If they would just work harder, they would not be in that situation. 
framing the cost of housing and accessibility of housing relative to what a minimum wage job will earn you sort of flips that on its head and says, no, even a family who is working full time or even two or three full time jobs, depending on the market, may not be able to afford what should be a relatively modest living accommodation. In that way, I just find that the data that this report points to Not only does the report uncover this pattern that is pervasive across the country, but it frames that pattern in a way that is impossible to ignore, that sort of makes people reckon with underlying ways that the housing market is broken, and that there are also things in the economy fundamentally that are connected to housing that are broken as well. You know, we are in a situation where a typical personal care aid, this is a job that we are going to need more and more of in this country as we age. This is a growing profession. A typical personal care aid in America earns $11.71 an hour, according to the report. And the typical wage you would need to earn, the median wage across the entire country, to a four-day two-bedroom apartment is twice that. It's $22.96. So that basically means, for instance, a single mother or a single father with one or two children who is doing this job that is essential to our economy and essential to the health of the community, a personal care aid, cannot, in fact, afford a house reasonably. They would have to, in that situation, do multiple jobs or double up with other families, live in a situation that I think would really be unsustainable. We're going to talk about how we got to this situation, specifically the policy choices that have been made that exacerbated this situation. We're going to talk about what candidates running for president who are currently in the process of forming their housing policies should do about this so that they can take some of these ideas and incorporate them into their platforms. But before we get to all of that, I thought that I would open by asking each of the experts who's on this podcast with me about your experience with that one central fact about how in no state, in no metropolitan area, in no county in the country, will a minimum wage job earn you enough to afford a two-bedroom apartment? I am curious if there has been a time when you gave that statistic to a politician and you saw that it changed their thinking? Or was there a time yourself when you were looking at this data and it made you realize something different about the housing crisis than how you thought about it before? Because that central fact and that statistic is so powerful, I would like you guys to each tell us a little bit about how you see the power of that fact play in conversations that you have with people about this data. Four experts who are joining me on this podcast are Sheila Crowley, who was the former president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, who retired from that job in 2016. Peggy Bailey is the vice president for housing policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Her work has focused in particular on the many links between housing and health. Erhard Manka is an NLIHC board member. He coordinates the Vermont Affordable Housing Coalition and in his long career has also worked in local government, where, among other things, he had a stint on the city council in Burlington, Vermont, when this guy Bernie Sanders happened to be mayor there. And then Andrew Arend is the vice president for research at the NLIHC. And in that capacity, he is the main author of the Out of Reach Report, in addition to other research efforts that the coalition works on. I'm going to start with you, Erhard. Give me a story of how you have pulled this statistic out of your pocket and seen its power in the world. Thank you, and I really appreciate being on this podcast. Appreciate the introduction also. So I've worked in housing in Vermont for over 30 years at this point, and actually I'm flying down here this morning. I was looking at our press release from 
20 years ago for the Out of Reach Report. I couldn't find anything online for 30 years back for the 30th anniversary, but I did find the uh, one from 20 years ago. And something really jumped out at me, and that is, well, first of all, just a little bit of background on Vermont. Vermont is a small rural state. We do have a metropolitan area, so-called by the Office of Management and Budget, but its core community, Burlington, only has 43,000 people. So the entire state is really the size of a mid-size American metropolitan city like Boston or San Francisco, for example. That's the entire state, and most of it is rural, but we have an affordable housing problem, and we have had an affordable housing problem since I've been involved in the early 80s. I got involved in housing in the Reagan era, which was another time which was time of crisis and rising unaffordability in Vermont and nationally. Right now, our statewide housing wage in Vermont is $22.78 an hour. And if I look back 20 years ago, it was just about half that. And more startlingly even for me is that the average amount of rent that a renter could afford in Vermont back then was $602 a month. That was for rent and utilities. And now it's fairly stagnant. It's only about $690 a month that they can afford for that modest two-bedroom apartment. By contrast, that two-bedroom rent has just about doubled. So for me, part of the story of looking back over the last 20 years is that renters' wages in our state have remained absolutely stagnant, while rents have just about doubled. To me, that tells the story of the rising inequality in this country, the rising inequality in a rural state like mine. To me, what's most compelling about this is it puts the housing crisis and the affordability gap in kind of the bluntest way that people understand it, which is how much do you earn an hour or how much do you earn a year? So that twenty-two seventy-eight an hour translates into a little over 47000 a year. And that brings it home to just about everybody. It brings it home to working people. It brings it home to policymakers, whether you're a legislator at the state level or if you're a city manager or a mayor, everybody understands what they're earning either on an annual or per hour basis. And this just brings it home better than anything else that I know. Thank you for framing it that way. Peggy, let me turn to you and ask you the same question. The way that I see it resonate is in the cross-sector work that I do. So looking at the impact of housing on our ability to help children and families stay out of the child welfare system, being able to help families as they engage with the health care system more broadly. When you tell these other sectors, yes, the people that you see are having an affordable housing crisis, but it's deep. It's not only the person who's chronically ill that can't afford their house. It's not only the person who's living with disabilities that can't afford a place to live. It's everyone. That helps it settle with them on understanding that they alone also can't solve the affordable housing crisis, that they need to partner with the housing world. If we had a situation like we have in the affordable housing space in healthcare, there would be riots on the street. It wouldn't be acceptable that only one in four people who are eligible for rental assistance get it. We wouldn't find that acceptable. That is how I see this resonate, is in the call to action for bringing more partners to the table to help us in the affordable housing world advocate for the resources and better policies that we need. Sheila, I know that you have carried these findings to very powerful people and elected officials and tried to sort of whack them over the head with these reports. Tell us a little bit about how these findings resonate with the people who have the power to do something about it. I was listening to everybody and reflecting um, 20 years ago when I did uh, the first out of reach report when, in my tenure. 
that was the year that we added non-metro data. So we were able to say something about every jurisdiction in the country. So that was the year we could talk about the fact that you can't afford it anywhere. There was a push going on for minimum wage at the time and an increase in the minimum wage. And our champion for that in the Senate was Ted Kennedy. That was a statistic that he used that everybody who talked about the minimum wage used in, in those times. But let me just pull out a little bit of the double-edged sword about using the minimum wage. When you look deeper into the report and you look at the statistic called the housing wage, which is what you actually have to make in order to be able to afford the fair market rent, it's always higher in most places than any proposal for increasing the minimum wage. Andrew, it is your job to produce the numbers that we're talking about, to do the work of calculating exactly what a housing wage looks like in all of these different communities, and to then be looking at what housing wages look like compared to what people are actually earning. Have you ever, in the process of doing this work, had the experience of looking at these numbers for the first time and being taken aback by them? Or do you have the experience that this is what I predicted would happen? We know that things are getting worse. This is about in line with sort of how much worse it got last year and the year before that. When you see those numbers for the very first time, what is your reaction to them? It's always shocking when you look at some of the high-cost metro areas. You know, in some metro areas in California, you have the housing wage for a two-bedroom apartment is more than $40 an hour. $60 and that's an just hour shocking. in San Francisco. Exactly. Yeah. That is shocking every year to me and to a lot of other people. There's another report we do called The Gap. In The Gap, what we talk about is the shortage of rental homes for extremely low-income and very low-income renters. And, you know, we find in that report that there's a shortage, national shortage, of 7 million affordable and available rental homes for extremely low-income renters. You know, California has a shortage of more than a million. A small state, Vermont, has a shortage of 12,000. That's a big shortage for Vermont. I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around, like, numbers of homes and, you know, what 7 million homes is and what that looks like. But when you say that someone has to earn close to $23 an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment, everyone can wrap their head around a wage and what they earn and what various occupations pay. And it's the same message. You know, how do we solve the affordable housing problem? Well, we address the shortage of affordable homes, which is what the gap gets to. But I think people recognize the problem more easily if they're not in the housing field. They recognize the problem more easily when they read out of reach. Some of the statistics that we're talking about have very evidently grown worse over the last 30 years. I mean, not only have these housing wages increased and they've increased far faster than inflation has, but a lot of the other ways that we measure the severity of the housing crisis that today, as Peggy alluded to earlier, you know, only one in four households that is poor enough that it would be eligible for some kind of housing assistance from the federal government actually gets it because we don't give out enough of it. In the late 1980s, that was only one in three households. The number that Andrew just mentioned of the shortage of affordable and available housing units for extremely low-income families, that number has grown significantly over the last 20 years. Part of what I want to unpack is how did we get to this point? Fundamentally, it's this tension between housing as a private commodity in our economy and housing as a public good and our inability to really solve that tension over the course of time. And the way that we've done it, actually, is to lean more into housing as a commodity than housing as a public good. But what data is telling us and that you alluded to in the introduction, Emily, is without housing, people aren't as healthy. People don't live in places that they feel safe and where their kids can go to a safe school. Housing really needs to be looked at as a public good if we're going to help those who need it the most. And it's not only about building more units. It's also about people just being able to afford the place that they live. 
sometimes we think about solving for affordable housing as if we're solving for homelessness entirely. And most people aren't homeless. Most people have a place to live. They just can't afford that place to live or that place to live is so expensive. It's putting pressures on the food that they're able to buy and the after school activities for their kids and the medication that they can afford. We need to also remember that if we could just help people stay where they are, we would not only be helping the family, but we would be eating into some of those social services costs that people are also using. So when you just look at the decision points over time, that that tension between housing as a commodity and the public good that can be achieved if everyone could afford their place to live is really where we've fallen short and where we need to increase the energy that we have in this conversation. I bump up against that tension all the time in my reporting, although I think about it a little differently. I I think about it more as that we literally tell homeowners every day in America that you should expect your property to increase in value. It is your right to reap returns from your home. And in fact, you should plan on banking your entire retirement off of the money you're going to make from your housing. And then at the same time as we're talking about how we should all expect housing to increase in value, we're wondering why is housing getting more expensive? How can we make it less expensive so that more people can afford it? Certainly housers do this, but people outside of the housing policy community seldom hold those two ideas in their mind at the same time and think about how they are in direct contradiction with each other. The market doesn't float all boats. We have this myth of the free market and we engineer that market in so many different ways. People don't recognize that the real estate market is engineered and home ownership and wealth is engineered through the massive tax benefits that homeowners receive who are able to itemize on their federal tax return and take their mortgage interest as a deduction. It's not as big a benefit anymore necessarily after Trump's Tax Reform Act, but it's still the largest subsidy for housing bar none. And it outpaces our combined spending on HUD programs and USDA rural development programs and has for many, many years. Going back to the history, one thing I remember, and this is from a research report that I think Cushing Dolbear used to do for the NLIHC that looked at trends in federal spending. And my recollection right. from that report is that the high watermark for federal spending on housing was in the late 70s. It was under Jerry Ford and under President Carter. And even, you know, though he was a crook and much maligned, even Richard Nixon did more for affordable housing than many administrations that have been around uh, since. I actually really attribute the massive change in housing policy to Ronald Reagan and what happened in the Reagan administration. What we see as modern day homelessness did not exist in the way that it does today before Ronald Reagan and the federal deconstruction of federal affordable housing programs. Um, So it goes back at least to the Reagan era, back to no longer subsidizing public housing, not building any more public housing and letting the public housing that we have, which was originally supposed to be housing for working Americans, for the working poor, the working lower middle class. It has become the housing of last resort in many areas for the very poorest and most vulnerable citizens, which it was never actually really designed to do. And it's being neglected and underfunded. We have, what, a $50 billion deficit? It's not rocket science to see when you underfund something to that extent that ultimately real estate interests that look at the real estate that has become very valuable that public housing occupies in many of our metropolitan areas, why they want to destroy it because they want to 
to make money and now reap benefits by redeveloping and making a lot of money. So there are just so many ways that we have messed up the nation's need for affordable housing. It goes back also to applying the kind of austerity budgets that the IMF applies to third world countries that borrow from it to get out of their most recent economic crisis. We're, we're basically applying that austerity to ourselves and have been doing that for the last 30 plus years. Let me pull you into this conversation about history and how we got here. Well, the one thing I would add about the budget is also in the 70s, if you look at the budget authority for the federal government, we were willing to make long-term commitments to affordable housing. So project-based rental assistance contracts that were 20 years long, for example, where now a lot of our housing assistance is more on a short-term basis. And so vouchers have to be authorized every year. So you're fighting just to protect those vouchers every year. Our project-based rental assistance contracts are for shorter periods of time. I mean, not only are we not investing enough money, but we also don't make the same long-term commitment through our budget authority as we used to in the 70s. And so that's one of the things we also need to think about is not just more resources for affordable housing, but that long-term commitment so you're not fighting to protect those resources year after year after year. One thing that I want to put a finer point on is the history of racism in this country, too. It has led to where we've come to. Talking about how public housing is much maligned, really putting voice to that is the stigma that grew throughout the 80s and early 90s around who was in public housing and who got rental assistance and the idea that that was mostly people who were black and then the negative stereotypes that were put on the people that were in that housing that caused society to separate ourselves from the need to build more affordable housing because affordable housing equaled public housing was equaled helping non-deserving people. And that history is still exists today. So I think it's important to put voice to that because it's something that with the administration pulling back fair housing regulations that we expect to start happening soon, there's a significant need to be able to say people of color, people with disabilities have been discriminated against and not only discriminated against, but also actively fought against being able to provide housing for those folks in their neighborhood. And that has to be overcome. And since it's policy to a degree that has caused that, it's going to take policy interventions to overcome it. We've also, I think, seen those stigmas evolve somewhat and the language that people use to describe them changes somewhat, too. I mean, we're in this moment right now where we hear a lot about, are you able-bodied? If you're able-bodied, then you are undeserving of any kind of aid because you ought to be working with that able body that you have. Or, you know, now we're having these conversations about mixed status families in public housing and whether or not they're immigrant or non-citizen members of a household. The underlying notion that some people are undeserving of assistance has always been with us. But as the country changes, we are continually changing our definition of who we think is undeserving and changing the ways that we talk about them as certain language becomes sort of unacceptable over time. What happened to thinking about the common good and how we're all connected to each other and that if the least among us isn't successful, then we're all not successful? How have we as a society really been able to separate ourselves from each other in such a way that we can be so judging and in a way that um, is so harmful and not seeing that we're all hurt by the harm that can be caused by other people and our lack of caring about each other? That's clearly because it really benefits certain politicians to other people. 
and to use that politically. Not to get too political in this discussion, but that's certainly what's happened. And housing has been used as a way to keep people of color and minorities down in the United States, dating back to the very way that public housing was first conceived of in the 30s. There was going to be public housing for white people and public housing for black people. And we know about redlining and how lending policy has basically contributed to the great disparity in wealth accumulation between white people and people of color. I mean, it's just been built into the system and housing has been one of the tools that has really helped to exacerbate that disparity in wealth between white people and people of color. We do know that even as elected officials and Washington policymakers historically have not prioritized housing, have made choices along the way historically that have made this problem worse. We do have evidence that the public at large kind of recognizes that this is a big problem. And obviously, an increasing number of people, including people in the middle class, are starting to directly feel the consequences of this crisis that's both spreading across the country and spreading up the income spectrum. One data point on this that I keep coming back to is that the coalition sponsored a public opinion poll called the Opportunity Starts at Home poll in which 85 percent of people said that they believe a safe, decent, affordable place to live should be a top national priority. One of the tensions that I keep trying to wrap my own head around is why is it if the public says in some ways that they want this, even though the public also obviously has these racial biases and sort of hang ups and beliefs about who's deserving and who's not. But if in general, the public, you know, wants to make housing a big deal, like why have we not seen that basically up until the election we're currently having right now where all of a sudden we're talking a lot about it? You know, as soon as we start to get into a conversation about how much is all of this going to cost, we run up against the budget constraints that exist within Congress that have gotten only tighter and tighter and tighter over time. Housing isn't an entitlement program. It's not like Medicaid. If you're eligible for housing assistance, you don't automatically get it. And the public may not also understand that. And so in order to achieve what the public wants, it's going to take a major investment. And we've gotten into this dilemma of, well, we're only making investments if we can show cost savings somewhere else. Like everything gets put in this cost conversation rather than, as I talked about before, the public good that can be attained by the investments that we make. So that's where the what the public wants then comes crashing down into the realities of what happens in Congress every day and here in D.C., where it's so hard to make incremental change. But what I would say is that polling data that 85 percent of the public feel that way is huge for us. In the affordable housing world, we've really always felt like the stepchild of the safety net programs. And now we're starting to see this energy really increase around affordable housing. And Emily, as you said, in my introduction, I have focused on health care also in this intersection. And what I keep saying in the last few months since this polling data has come out is that I really don't want this moment in time to be like 1992 was for health care, where we have all this energy, the public wants something to happen, and then we get bogged down in the realities of D.C. and nothing happens for 10 years until the children's health insurance program gets passed. And then that's still incremental. How do we take this energy that the public has and break through the realities of D.C. rather than getting beaten down by the realities of D.C.? It's clear that several of the candidates running for the presidential nomination on the Democratic Party are responding to that energy. I mean, we have heard fairly groundbreaking housing proposals from at least four of them so far, and there will surely be more to come. Elizabeth Warren has probably the most far-reaching plan. 
Cory Booker, we have also heard from, Julian Castro, not surprisingly, who was previously a secretary at HUD. Kamala Harris also has been talking a lot about a renter credit that she has proposed. Given that we're starting to get pretty big ideas thrown on the table, what would give us the most bang for the buck if, you know, we can harness this energy right now? What would you want to see these candidates really latch on, seriously pick up? Let's say one of them becomes president in the first 100 days. What do they run with? So in Vermont, we often talk about three legs of a proverbial three-legged stool of investments in affordable housing um, that would really change things. It's not rocket science. It's not that difficult. First, you need large investments in programs that work, uh, that help build and preserve existing affordable housing, both build new and preserve the housing that is out there that's already affordable, that is in danger of being lost. The National Housing Trust Fund, which the NLHC has championed and which Bernie Sanders wrote the first bill. Finally, after many years, we got funding for that and it's out there. It's doing the job. It is helping the lowest income Americans afford housing. That's not the only program. I mean, we rely on just everything. The federal low-income housing tax credit, which we alluded to earlier, created in 1986 during the Reagan administration. It is the driver of moderately affordable rental housing. Secondly, we need rental assistance and other financial supports that help prevent those who are at risk of being evicted or becoming homeless purely for financial reasons. They need assistance. And we need a lot more rental assistance. And then thirdly, we need supportive services for folks with the greatest challenges. You can't just give them a voucher and expect them to succeed and maintain that housing. They need some level of support. Some people need it for a short period of time. Some people need it for many years or possibly a lifetime so that they can live at the level of independence that they're able to with the kinds of supports that we need to provide in order to keep them out of a much higher cost institutional setting, higher cost to all of us. So those are kind of broad brush, the three basic ingredients that we talk about in Vermont. And I think people all across the country in housing talk about those as the three major things. And then you can start chunking those out into different programs that currently exist, some of which are maligned, but they're all very, very successful when they're used uh, right at the local level and when folks at the local level who have the expertise to talk about why is it so hard to elevate housing. Housing is complicated. It is real estate development and real estate development, especially in a built out older section of the country like New England, where I live, it's not that easy. One of the other things that we need to do, many policymakers have talked about changing the regulatory burden, and, and sometimes I roll my eyes at that, but it is absolutely true. We do not have enough areas in the country that are zoned for dense multifamily housing. Once you get out of the central cores of major metropolitan areas, you see what Minneapolis has done by eliminating single-family lot development. It's money and it's local expertise and it's policy and regulatory environment that would basically incentivize and, and allow all of that to happen. The person who has the biggest game-changing proposal for addressing this problem is Elizabeth Warren. And she has a proposal for producing millions and millions and millions of units to address the shortage. And she does it with um, a fairly modest tax on estates relative to what the estates are worth. So there are solutions. There certainly are solutions. There's always been solutions. It's not complicated. It's not cancer. We're trying to find a cure for it. We just have to build housing and we have to give people the resources they need in order to be able to sustain it. Sheila, what is it about Elizabeth Warren's plan that you're so excited about? Oh, the scale. 
She's putting huge money into everything that needs to be done. And it's bold, and it recognizes that the people with a huge amount of money can afford to not have quite so huge amount of money. It's just incredible. We have to remember that it's not that we lack the resources. We have never lacked the resources. We have the resources to do the things that we want to do. One other thing that Elizabeth Warren has done that's been really striking to me is that she is talking a lot about racial disparities in the housing market. And she's doing that in Iowa and New Hampshire and places where she's not just speaking to African-American audiences about African-American issues, which I think is really striking. And that comes back to, Peggy, some of the issues that you were raising earlier about keeping in mind that there are sort of disparate effects of the crisis that we're talking about and that it is hitting communities of color that are more likely to be renters, that are more likely to be very low income renters. So to the extent that these candidates or future politicians who are going to tackle this could continue to think about racial inequality in addition to just creating more housing, what, what would that look like to you, Peggy? This is particularly important to not only me, but also the work that we've been doing at the center and around location and where people live. We've recently focused on this in a few of our reports about the over-concentration of people of color in low-income neighborhoods and the degree to which programs like the voucher program are unfortunately making this worse when the voucher program can make it better. Given that the family holds the voucher, they should be able to choose wherever they want to to live and use that voucher in any community. It's important both at the federal level and the local level. At the local level, housing authorities need to take a proactive approach to helping families live in communities of their choice, whether that's simply making sure that there are landlords in every community to rent to people or also adding additional services and supports around that family so that they can live in communities where there are more jobs, where there are better schools, where they may not have the family supports that they have nearby to help with other things and maybe moving into communities that they're not as familiar with or feel and need some extra support. There's also things that the federal level has done to make the way that we calculate rent and how much rental assistance families can get through the rental assistance program better by using what we call a small area fair market rent calculation, which is, I think the simplest way to explain it, is rather than looking at rents across a large area of a community, breaking that down so that you can more accurately calculate the rent in any given neighborhood rather than across an entire city or entire county, which helps make that rental assistance that a family might get higher. They may be able to get more rental assistance and therefore live in a place where rent might be more expensive because of this different calculation in how what you can get through the rental assistance program could work. What's limiting choice is cost, especially in a place like San Francisco that we all have heard about and how hard it is to live there. The voucher program may not give a family enough money to be able to afford a place to live. And so policies that help increase the amount of rental assistance a family can get can be really helpful. As we wrap this up, I want to give Andrew the last word on this. Specifically, if we were to have the sequel of this podcast like 10 years from now, and let's say many of the ideas that we've talked about have actually been implemented, what would that look like in the data in the framework of the Out of Reach report? Would we see those housing wages actually come down? Would we see the growth of them slow? Would we see the gap between what the housing wages and what people are actually earning start to shrink? Like, tell me how we will know and what we will see in the world out there around us as a consequence of some of the policies we're talking about. 
One of the things that we would see is a ban against or prohibition of source of income discrimination. One of the challenges that voucher holders have, not just, you know, finding a home that they can use their voucher in in terms of cost, but also, you know, in many areas of the country, landlords can reject voucher holders. You know, we need a sufficiently funded voucher program that everyone who qualifies would be able to receive assistance. And at the same time, there would be ban against discrimination against We would see that one in four number come down. Right. We would see, you know, four out of four households in some way getting housing assistance. We would have adequate resources in the National Housing Trust Fund because we need more housing that's subsidized for extremely low and very low income renters. You know, I think the housing wage, if we developed more housing, that would slow down the growth in housing costs, particularly in rental costs for families and individuals. But we would have adequate resources to help those families afford housing, both in the private market. And also we would have subsidized housing for those who can't find housing in the private market. So that gap between wages actual wages in the housing wage would come down. The market won't provide high enough wages as the housing wage, but we would have resources in place that people could find affordable housing. So we will all meet back here in a decade and either (laughs) have a conversation about how nothing has changed since 40 years ago or 50 years ago, or maybe we will be having a totally different conversation. It feels like we're in a moment where that is possible. I want to thank everybody who joined us for this. Congratulations to the coalition on the 30th anniversary of this report. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So there you have it. I'm glad that Emily mentioned our recent poll findings that 85% of the public believes that housing affordability should be a top national priority. And that's a strong view amongst Democrats and Republicans alike. So you know, hopefully we're at a turning point and the growing public and political will will open the door for big solutions. And as Sheila said, we've never lacked the resources, only the will to implement those resources at the scale necessary. And part of building that will is expanding our coalitions to go beyond housing and advocating for solutions in a multi-sector way, which is exactly what the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign is all about and why the National Low Income Housing Coalition has prioritized and led this cross-sector approach. Housing is central to so many other national priorities, health, education, income mobility, racial equity, and much more. So it makes sense that leaders from these sectors are joining in our advocacy to advance bold solutions to make homes affordable for the lowest income people. Also, it's clear that the understanding of the crisis is growing. The public concern is growing, as evidenced by our polling. Media coverage of of out-of-reach and other NLIHC research has more than tripled in the past three years. Members of Congress and 2020 presidential candidates are proposing historically bold policy solutions. And for the first time in decades, if ever, affordable housing is a primary issue being raised by both constituents and candidates on the campaign trail. And the number of other sectors that are recognizing that housing is important to their own goals is growing. We have an unprecedented moment of opportunity in the coming years, unlike any housing advocates have seen before. And if we continue telling the stories, sharing the data, expanding the coalitions, and engaging policymakers, we can achieve big change together. 
Thanks, Diane. That's a great note to end on. And thanks to Emily, Peggy, Sheila, Earhart, and Andrew. A fascinating conversation that should leave us all really hopeful and energized for the years ahead. If you want to look at more information on the Out of Reach Report and to see the numbers for your state or your county, you can go to the website. It's nlihc.org backslash OOR, which stands for Out of Reach. So again, nlihc.org backslash OOR. Thanks again, and we'll talk next time.